Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 25th of May 2021 and this is episode 209. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to Dr Fanula Walsh, a lecturer in modern Irish history at University College Dublin, about her recent book on Irish women during the Great War. This is published by Cambridge University Press. Fanula spoke to me from her office in Dublin. Hi Fanula, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Sure. Um, so I'm a lecturer in modern Irish history um, at University College Dublin. I first became interested um, in the Great War during my undergraduate um, studies. Um, I, I took a course then on Ireland in the First World War. And before that, I had very little knowledge of our Irish participation in the war. Um, but encouraged by my lecturer, I went rummaging through the attic um, through family papers. And I discovered that not only had my great-grand-uncle served for the British Army, um, but my great-grandfather had served with the Royal Army Medical Corps in France, and my great-grandmother had um, been involved with the St. John Ambulance Association on the home front. Um, and this was some family history I didn't know anything about before that. And so I got quite interested in learning more. I'd always been interested in women's history, um, but from what I read on women's history in early 20th century Ireland, the war barely featured. Um, so I realised that there was rich potential here um, um, for further research. Um, I knew that it was an area of a lot of interest in the international scholarship of the war, about emancipation, um, gender roles and so forth. Um, but it had been very little written about for, for Ireland. So I decided to pursue this area for my PhD. So I went to Trinity College Dublin, um, where I completed my PhD um, to working with Professor David Fitzpatrick, um, who was one of the really the, one of the key pioneers of First World War studies in Ireland. Um, so completed my PhD, my postdoc fellowship in Trinity before moving to UCD. So why do you think a book on Irish women during the Great War is necessary. Yeah, so this is um, the first monograph to tackle this subject, focusing on on Ireland, um, looking at Irish women's experiences during those years. There's been, it's in the past 10 years, um, particularly during the centenary of the war, there's been um, a lot more published um, in this area, which is really good to see. Um, but it's been quite piecemeal, um, and I think there's great advantage to having um, one book that pulls it all together. Um, so looking at the war's impact on mobilisation, employment, family and domestic life, social morality, politicisation, and my book looks at this in an international um, context, you know, um, so con- and contributes to the expanding scholarship on Ireland's revolutionary period. I fundamentally believe that we cannot understand um, Ireland's war experience or that of the revolution, um, the revolutionary period in Ireland, War of Independence and so forth, without examining the impact of the war on women and on the home front, looking at this in detail. I do, I also um, feel quite strongly that of all the different factors affecting women's lives in early 20th century Ireland, um, it's the First World War that has the most significant and most wide-ranging impact on women's lives. Um, and so a book like this can tell us an awful lot about, about Irish history for that period, can tell us an awful lot about women's history in the 20th century, um, help us understand what comes afterwards, um, gender roles in 20th century Ireland. But it can also contribute an awful lot to the international scholarship of gender and the war, the interaction between home and front, the role of civil mobilisation, um, how societies can be pulled into the vortex of war, even in the absence of conscription or heavy bombardment 
bombardment and so forth. So when war broke out in August 1914, how did Irish respond, sorry, how did Irish women respond to the news? Yeah, so from looking at women's diaries from that time, um, you get a real sense of confusion, um, uncertainty, um, but also a realisation that something momentous and important is happening, that they're living through history in the making in a sense. Um, now, in Ireland, it's quite interesting because the country had been on the verge of civil war in summer 1914 over the issue of home rule. Um, also unionists and nationalists were um, arming themselves and preparing for, for conflict. And so European war actually means peace at home. Um, and so there's a sense of all this tension is let go and a sense of relief um, and a sense of, you know, okay, we can move on to this, to this other thing. Um, so in a way, the war <laughs> sort of paradoxically becomes a good destruction for, for Ireland in that sense. Um, it does also, um, you know, women throw themselves into activities on the home front. Their initial response really is to want to do their bit, uh, to be involved. Reservists have been mobilised, uh, men are joining up, so women, you know, want to do their equivalent. And this mobilisation takes lots of different forms, um, includes obviously nursing wounded soldiers, preparing hospital supplies in Ireland, collecting um, moss from Bogland to use as a cotton wool substitute, preparing parcels to send soldiers in prison of war camps there at the front, um, military roles in port areas that behind the lines, producing weapons of war and munitions factories. Um, so real great range of things, but the response really is, you know, wanting to do their bit to be involved um, to some level. And how did the war um, shape the private and domestic lives of women? So this is, yeah, this is really um, dependent on women's social class and on their family circumstances. So um, over 200,000 Irish men voluntarily serve in the British forces during the war, leaving many families behind in Ireland. Um, and so these women were coping with separation from their husband um, or another family member, attempting to manage a household um, in a time of rising inflation and food shortages. Um, you know, food prices increased quite significantly during the war. Um, rationing um, very limited commodities is introduced in 1918. Um, but by that time, um, inflation has really become a serious problem. And so women are trying to, you know, manage um, queuing for food, trying to adjust the family diet, um, you know, um, adapt the recipes, but also practice austerity in the name of patriotism. Um, so there's, for, um, you know, poor families, um, they're suffering, um, particularly in urban areas um, from this. Um, there's increased reliance on the state and on charities for support and welfare. Um, but also women have more control over the household budget when their husbands are away. So um, the separation allowances provided to the dependents of soldiers mean that each week they get to collect this from the post office, that they have control over the family income. Um, and while this brings increased responsibilities, um, for some women it is actually liberating um, and it, it does improve their family's um, circumstance. At the same time, though, loneliness, anxiety, stress, um, these are all common features. And sadly for the families of the um, approximately 5,000 men who were killed um, during the war, um, grief and bereavement um, um, are also part of their wartime experience. I think a really interesting area of your book looked at how the war shaped social, norm, social, social norms, public morality and women's behaviour. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so this is one of the sort of um, most contested areas, controversial areas of women's experiences during the war. Um, so the separation allowances that I mentioned, the, these welfare supports provided to soldiers' families 
studies, um, meant that there was greater state intervention into women's lives um, and raised all these questions about do these allowances constitute welfare? Are they payment to the women? Are they part of the husband's pay? Um, and so is the state effectively becoming a surrogate husband? Um, do they have jurisdiction over the women's behaviour? Um, and lots of people um, in Ireland believe that they that they do um, and believe that order organisations such as the church um, have a um, can be involved in um, in policing women's behaviour. Um, and so this concern about increased spending power among working class women, um, concern about um, drunkenness, um, child neglect, um, fraud, um, that um, these women in received separation allowances are alleging um, getting involved in. There's also concern with sexual immorality. Um, so this particularly relates to women walking out with soldiers, concerned with the idea of the amateur prostitute. Um, so women sleeping with soldiers before they part the front, for example, um, spreading venereal disease, at least the possibility that they might spread syphilis, for example, um, concerned with so-called war babies, um, the illegitimate children of soldiers. And these, so some of this is hysteria, so there's a big moral panic around war babies um, that does not um, have to eventually admit they don't materialise. The illegitimacy rate actually doesn't change very significantly during the war. Um, and similarly, with a lot of these issues, you know, there's increased interest, there's increased intent, attention being paid to these topics. Um, women's behaviour is literally being placed in the, um, that women's patrols are established um, in cities in Dublin, um, in Ireland, in Dublin and Belfast. Um, and so there's greater, you know, there's, reg- there's legislation brought in to, um, 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 regarding um, um, policing women's bodies in relation to the spread of disease and so forth. But from what I can see, it doesn't seem that women's behaviour actually changes that significantly. It's more that there's much greater surveillance of their actions and concerns about social morality, concerns about the risk that women um, might pose to the state, might pose to the military um, through their behaviour. So obviously war brought a major change in the economic landscape of Ireland. Now what sort of career and work opportunities did this create for women? Yeah, so the um, the war's impact on women is, is a really interesting area of the historiography um, in international first war studies. Um, and it's where we kind of get into it issues about um, emancipation and what the war can can mean for um, can mean for women's lives. Um, obviously in Ireland there's no conscription um, so the British government introduced conscription in England, Scotland and Wales in 1916 but they don't implement it in Ireland um, and so um, this means that the war's impact um, on women in the workforce is necessarily more limited than it is um, in Britain um, but nonetheless there are some quite significant changes um, both to women's employment in actual terms but also in how women perceive their own employment um, and their attitudes towards it and wider societal views of women's employment. Um, one of the most obvious um, aspects of this is in relation to munitions. Um, so munitions factories are established um, all around Ireland. Um, now most of them are located in Belfast, which is the most um, industrial area um, of the country. So their um, textile factories convert into um, munitions factories um, producing bomb grenades and so forth. Um, but there's also national shell factories established in Dublin, Cork, Waterford and Galway, for example. Um, and these do follow a policy of um, preferring to employ women um, with the intent of freeing men up to, to serve in the British force. Um, and munitions work is, um, so most of those women who go into munitions work are former domestic servants. Um, and so munitions work is much better paid, um, but also has much more freedom associated with it. Um, you know, domestic service, you typically live in the 
family leaves home that you work for um, your time isn't really your own um, and it's a very subservient role um, munitions work you work your hours you go home you have more control over your spending uh, no obviously it came with its own dangers and health risks for it but it was promoted as you know something a bit more glamorous something um, where you can make a good deal of money basically um, and so women in Ireland also had the um, possibility of traveling to Britain to work in the much more extensive war industry in Britain um, and thousands of women um, took up that opportunity to do so um, they didn't always um, have a harmonious relationship with their fellow workers in England um, and there were some some problems um, uh, caused by nationalist sentiment um, um, clashes um, um, over politics and so forth um, but this is nonetheless um, you know a great opportunity for, for women to, to, um, to earn some money at the time um, and then you know another area so for example the railway industry um, as the men mobilize on the on the home um, to join the military, there's gaps left behind. So, um, you know, in, in, on the railways, the number of women in the workforce um, almost doubles during the war in Ireland, um, and they, you know, take on new positions within that. Um, other areas that are really important include clerical work um, and the civil service. Um, the war leads to a massive expansion in bureaucracy um, paperwork. Um, and so they need more people to fill these roles and also to replace the men who've been mobilised. Um, so there's new courses being set up all the time on shorthand typing, for example. Um, and this is a really appealing area for women to enter into. Um, one of the employment agencies in Dublin at the time um, is complaining because they're trying to push women into traditional women's roles, such as children's nurse, for example. And the women aren't interested in that journey the war they all want to be clerics they want to take on these new courses they want to do something different basically um, and so the numbers employed in the civil service for example um, increased very significantly during the war but again doesn't come with its without its problems and by 1916 most of the departments that they're working for say that they don't actually want to continue employing women after the war it creates too many difficulties um, you can't have women and men working in the same offices um, it leads to discipline issues um, and, um, and so forth so there's a sort of a sense yes we'll put up with this for the war but afterwards we expect women to go back home um, now for the professions as well there are some expanded opportunities so medicine being the most obvious one um, and there's lots more people um, women wanting to become doctors during the war so the numbers of female medical students increase very substantially and for some individual women they have the opportunity for a career advancement um, that they might not have had otherwise so the first um, house surgeon in the Royal Victoria Hospital and first woman appointed to that role happens during the war um, in Dublin, um, a woman is appointed as a residential medical officer, um, but um, it is actually stated um, that this is due to the exceptional circumstances of the war and it's not to be a precedent. Um, so there's, um, you know, in lots of different areas, there's just movement happening and there's a sense of increased confidence um, and women seeking out, um, take, trying to grab hold of the opportunities available to them. There's also improved pay and conditions, um, which arise from the expansion of the trade union movement. Um, so before the war, women, um, there are very few women belonging to trade unions in Ireland, um, very much mirroring what was happening in Britain. Um, and many of the trade unions refused to admit women um, into their ranks. But during the war, um, more of these opened up to women, um, but also new organisations were established. Um, so for example, 
the National Federation of Women Workers, um, which is a British organization. Um, it sets up branches in Ireland um, to unionize the munitions workers here um, and has you know, a few very significant um, successes um, in improving conditions there. The fact that compulsory arbitration is introduced um, in the war to prevent strikes breaking out on the home front, um, this means that there is improvements in wages. It means that it's just much more possible for um, agreements to take place um, and so it's possible for um, for you know greater change perhaps to happen than might have been possible before the war. Um, it is important to state that a lot of this was seen at the time as a temporary aberration due to the wartime circumstances. Um, women were encouraged to see their jobs as being solely for the war, um, a bit of doing their bit in the time of crisis. Um, and that's how most people who employ them also viewed it. And, you know, in the fact that they were entering into specifically war industries, or wartime bureaucracy and so forth, it did mean that the rollback, pushback after the war ends is pretty swift. Um, and, um, you know, most of these women lose their jobs almost immediately after the armistice um, in 1918. Um, some of them literally within a few weeks um, by the end of November 1918. Um, and the options beyond domestic service um, are really very limited. Um, so once again, um, emigration or um, the domestic sphere become really the only the only options available to women. Now, one of the major issues that happens in Ireland is obviously the Easter Rising, and that that throws up the political issue of support for the war. What was women's involvement in support for the war? And then we'll look at what they did against the war effort. Yeah. So there's um, women in Ireland are politicised to a much greater extent than will be the norm um, at the start of the war, and there's lots of really active of women's political organisations at that time um, on both the unionist and the nationalist side but also um, involved in the movement for women's suffrage um, which is a very active movement in Ireland at that time and despite the sort of the political tensions the the, um, the very particular um, political circumstances in Ireland at the time most of these organisations do divert to supporting the war effort in 1914 for example Oman, um, which is the nationalist women's organisation um, translates as the Irish Women's Council, um, they voted to support the war effort. Um, no, their central branch in Dublin opposed the war, but almost all of their regional branches um, um, said that they would put aside their other work um, and that they would um, engage in activities to support the war effort. So this involved, you know, for example, fundraising for Irish regiments, um, for looking after soldiers' families, joining the British Red Cross, for example. On the unionist side, um, the Ulster Women's Unionist Council become a really important force in mobilising um, and organising the war effort in Ulster. Um, they organise a prisoner of war fund, um, which is incredibly successful. They, um, a Spagnum Moss Association, so for collecting this moss for uh, replacing cotton wool, um, and also various nursing work. Um, Ulster volunteer force nurses, um, who'd been trained in many cases before the war in anticipation of civil war conflict in Ireland, um, they then switched into joining up with the British Red Cross. Um, they served in France um, as UVF nurses, um, but also in Ulster hospitals. Now they do, um, the Ulster Women's Unions Council is concerned during the war that um, its war work might divert it from its original principal cause, um, that of um, protecting
in Ulster from the threat of home rule. Um, and so they're quite cautious to do this work as um, Ulster women, as Ulster unionist women. And so they don't want to cooperate with Southern organisations, for example. They want to keep their own name um, on their work. Um, and in the sense to use the war effort as a way of proving their loyalty um, their sense of imperialism um, and their place within the British Empire. Um, on the suffrage side, so there had been a militant campaign um, in Ireland from 1912 to 1914, a um, little bit less dramatic than that, that in Britain at the time, but still involving smashing windows, digging up golf courses, um, lots of other um, fun endeavours. Um, and this is suspended on the outbreak of war, just as it is in, in Britain. Um, and there's lots of different suffrage societies in Ireland at that time, um, but most of them, um, I'll talk about the exceptions in a few minutes, most of them initially do support the war effort. And they, so the Munster Women's Franchise League, for example, fundraises for an ambulance um, at the front. Um, they set up at the Suffrage Emergency Council to organise war work. And like the Ulster Unionist women, they want to do this clearly as suffragists. They have suffrage badges. Um, they organise their own activities, um, you know, so fundraising for beds for hospitals, for example, that would have their name on it. And so for them, they see it as proving their word to citizens. So saying, you know, we are entitled to be considered citizens, to have the rights of citizenship. And we're going to prove that by helping out in time of crisis. Um, and so um, they're very involved um, um, on the home front in trying to alleviate the distress caused by the war, um, but also um, supporting the war effort. Um, but I, I say again, doing it as suffragists. So turning to the other side, what was women's involvement in dissent and support for the nationalist cause? Yeah, so from the outset, there was also people who opposed the war. Um, and this was most famously expressed by the suffrage newspaper, the Irish Citizen, um, which um, at the outbreak of war released a poster saying, votes for women now, damn your war. Um, and this received a lot of attention at the time, um, both, um, well, initially very negative, um, but they gradually gained support as well for their cause. The Irish Citizen was organised by the um, the Hannah and Francis Sheehy Skeffington, um, a really important um, suffragist couple um, at the time, um, really important feminist group. Um, and um, they belonged to Irish Women's Franchise League, which was a more radical suffrage society from the outset. It had been involved in militativity. And it felt very strongly that women should stay out of the war um, and that the war would not have broken out if women had the vote. Um, but this was a man-made war um, and um, it wasn't women's place to be involved in it, um, that they shouldn't be supporting um, this sort of jingoistic nationalist endeavour. Um, the suffrage movement was always quite international. They had links with suffragists in other countries. Um, and so, you know, they felt that this was um, this was not something that they should be part of. Within the movement, there's also pacifists um, and socialists and others who have their own different reasons for opposing the war. So, for example, there's Irish women involved with the Women's League of Peace and Freedom. Um, and so they're involved with the um, International Peace Conference which was held in The Hague in April 1915, which is a really important um, moment for um, bringing together international opposition to the war. Um, often gets overlooked, I think, in histories, but it's a really um, um, moment of trying to end the war. Um, and so there's various Irish women who try to get permits to attend it. Um, unfortunately, restrictions on civilian travel mean that they don't actually make it. Um, but they continue to be to be involved and to pay attention to these efforts. Um, the um, suffragists are also involved in anti-recruitment meetings, um, um, anti-war protests, um, and they view what women are doing for the war effort as, in one line, as a criminally stupid, stupid disregard of a rich fund of intellectual activity. So they're very dismissive of, of the women who put aside their suffrage work to focus on war relief. 
Um, this initially, however, is very much a minority viewpoint in Ireland. Um, but as the war goes on, it begins to to get more um, um, to get more traction. Um, so coming on, as I say, initially there are branches um, support the war effort from late 1915, 1916 onwards. They um, become more interested in the nationalist cause again. Um, coming on participates in the 1916 rebellion, um, and um, th- this is they play quite a significant role in that um, and this gets a lot of attention at the time for their cause and leads to a lot more interest um, and popular support um, for nationalism and republicanism in Ireland um, but also for women's place within that and the suffragists who'd been slightly on the fence about the nationalist cause in Ireland um, feeling that women's struggle should come first um, and that the um, 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 that some of the nationalist movement um, disregarded potential that women could provide and um, they were seeing them as animated collecting but not as um, individuals with agency. But the fact that the 1916 proclamation is addressed to Irish men and Irish women refers to equality of opportunity, refers to the suffragists of men and women explicitly. It's really quite a radical document for its time. Um, all of this means that women now see their place as being within the, this na- wider nationalist Republican movement. Um, you know, they want to be part of this, even as, as they say, it's really a paradigm time. Um, this then culminates a bit more and obviously so initially after these arising thousands of men are interned and imprisoned um, whether or not they had any role in these arising and so this means that it's women on the home front who have to take over the movement um, engage in fundraising um, keeping up morale um, organising things um, back home um, so they play a really important role at that stage um, this all becomes more um, to the sort of the public consciousness um, in 1918 with the anti-conscription campaign um, so 1918 and the British military suffering um, quite severe losses and they decide that it's worthwhile try and implement conscription in Ireland um, which is a complete disaster um, and now this it's important to point out here that this isn't so much an anti-war um, opposition it's primarily refusal um, opposition to coercion um, so this idea of Irish men being conscripted being forced to serve in the British army and um, that's the problem so even those who supported the war effort um, were sympathetic towards Irish men in the British army strongly opposed conscription. Um, it was really, it was one of those um, those events that really unified people from diverse backgrounds. Um, and women's role was really important in all of this, because of course, if men were conscripted, it would be necessary for women to take their job. Um, and so conscription depends, on a sense, on women's cooperation. And they knew that in Ireland. Um, so they um, had women sign pledges saying no woman will take a man's job. Um, and so women are deliberately sort of um, exempting themselves from this. Um, and but of recognizing the specific power that they have. Um, so, for example, on 9th of June 1918, this becomes Lawn Amon Women's Day. Um, and all over Ireland, there's demonstrations, um, marches, people signing pledges, um, 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 attendings at, at um, church services, um, all um, in opposition to conscription. Um, and this is one of the largest mobilizations of, of people in Irish history um, to date. Um, it's a really, it literally involves hundreds of thousands of people. And how did the social class geography and setting for instance rural or urban uh, settings shape women's and experience of the war yeah so the women's experience of the war is very much um, affected by all of those factors by sort of class um, um, geography um, um. so rural Ireland prospered from the war and um, the increased prices for Irish agricultural produce um, the high 
exports from Ireland to Britain um, the, as a consequence of the German submarine blockade, so Ireland only feeding Britain at that time, um, all mean that farmers are doing quite well out of the war. There's a much lower enlistment rate among farmers as well, um, so their families are much less likely to be negatively impacted by the war, say. Um, on the urban side, then, there's uh, um, they're suffering from inflation, food prices, coal shortages, um, a lot. Um, a lot more difficulties in a sense um, but also they're more likely to suffer from perhaps some of the so the wars have a more dramatic impact in a sense on their lives so the benefits of it are also perhaps more available to them in the sense of expanded um, opportunities in the workforce munitions factories um, home front positions and in, in clerical work um, auxiliary service hospital nursing um, all of these um, are much more located in urban areas and so in a sense you can be much more part of it all um, if you're living in an urban area. Um, and also, so a sense of geography. So um, enlistment was much higher in Ulster among both Catholic as well as Protestant. Um, and this is very much an urban-rural divide here. Um, and so the extent to which the war is impacting on your daily life is much more significant if you're living in Belfast compared to Cork, for example, um, or um, especially um, the west of Ireland, so Connacht and the western province, um, had the lowest rates of enlistment. Um, and people there were, were much less likely to be directly impacted um, by it. It also impacts in a sort of sense of, when it comes to issues like communal mourning, for example. Um, so for people in Dublin, um, their men mostly joined the Royal Dublin Fusiliers, um, which suffers massive losses at Gallipoli in 1915. And so Gallipoli is sort of Dublin's moment of, um, of, of mourning um, and um, severe distress and so forth. Well, for Ulster, it's the Somme in 1916. Um, so there are sort of their wartime calendars are quite different in that sense in terms of their key moments. Um, in terms of class though, it's also very very significant differences. So for the upper class, um, the war means that you can't go on holiday. Um, it means that your um, one woman um, complains about not being able to get straw hats from Italy. Um, you know, so it's concerned about differences in fashion. Um, the women's pages of magazines are filled with um, advice on how to, um, you know, dress like a munitions worker um, and, um, you know, advice on um, a sort of austerity through patriotism. So maybe saving money and, you know, not buying furs quite so often. Um, so, it's you know, it's a really different um, experience in a sense. Well, for poor people, you know, it's the price of a bag of flour. Um, it's literally, you know, on a sort of bleak note, you know, infant mortality um, increases quite significantly in urban areas in Dublin, um, where housing is also a real big problem um, and where renovations get spended during the war. Um, well, in rural Ireland, infant mortality actually improves. Um, and so the, um, you know, the impact, um, how much you're affected by the war, um, you know, really is, um, it comes down to, you know, whether you have a family member serving the forces, where you're living in Ireland, um, your area of work, in a sense, partly your religion, your political affiliation. Um, and that's where it's really important to think, you know, when doing a study like this, to try and avoid generalizations as much possible, um, to avoid acting as though there's one homogenous war experience for women. We wouldn't imagine that there would be for men, um, and the same holds true for women. Um, and so it's trying 
to be true to those differences, um, which I think in Ireland are as acute that we can use the term um, um, drawn up by Karen Hunt, a plural home front, um, you know, to talk about something quite different in Ulster compared to south of Ireland um, and urban rural difference. And my penultimate question is what projects are you currently working on? Yeah, so um, my next um, big book project, I guess, is a study of family and everyday life um, in the Irish Revolutionary period, focus on the aftermath um, of the war. Um, so looking at the period primarily 1919 to 1923, um, when of course the War of Independence breaks out in Ireland, civil war. Um, but I'm looking at that through the lens of post-war society. Uh, it's put in the context of shattered zones of empire, um, of you know what's happening internationally, um, but trying to again look at how conflict pervades people's interior domestic lives. Um, so that that's the sort of the um, that's the new work, which is very much still at um, um, early stage of, of imagining. Um, but that's that's what I'm pretty excited about. Um, and finally, where can people learn more about your work and your book? Yeah, so the uh, the book is um, it's published by Cambridge University Press, and so it's available through their website, um, but also through lots of other um, um, booksellers, uh, both online and um, physically. Um, it is at the moment it's only available in hardback and in ebook, um, so um, it it is quite expensive. And um, there will be a paperback version um, coming out um, sometime, um, I think, late 2021. Um, so hopefully it'll become a bit more accessible um, at that point. Um, in terms of other works and I've written about this general area um, the, my profile on the UCD um, School of History website um, gives, gives more information there Barula, thank you very much for your time No problem, it's a pleasure You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow it was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>